The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, My Farm Radio, and the Growing Knowledge blog on AnswerPlot.com. Welcome back to The Deal with Yield. And joining us as usual, Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield Ag Technology Applications Lead, and Kyle Reiner, Winfield Master Agronomy Advisor. So, Joel, what is the importance of soil and tissue sampling as farmers begin to plan for next year? So, for NutriSolutions 360, think about what can I do this fall to start myself off next year to be in a good position. It starts with a soil sample. And fall soil sampling, spring soil sampling, it doesn't really matter as long as you're preparing to take a measurement of what you're trying to manage. And in a fall soil sample, you should look at three main things. You should look at your pH levels. If you need lime, make an adjustment. If you need phosphorus or potassium, those are two other good places to take a look at. And the NutriSolutions 360 process is really about starting with that soil sample, working into the season, taking a tissue sample to get an up-to-the-minute, what is my plant doing now, and then using things like plant growth regulators like Ascend to help drive that plant further along in the year. So it's really about taking a holistic nutrition approach to that crop and analyzing it both while you're preparing for the crop and while the crop is growing. Does everybody take soil samples nowadays? Do you know farmers that still don't take soil samples? Well, I don't know too many that aren't taking soil samples. It's probably about the frequency at which they're taking samples. Most farmers are sampling on an every two- to four-year basis on a grid sample, but some of them are still taking one sample in a 20-acre area, and we call that more of a zone sample or a conventional sample. Some is better than none, but still, if you've got field variability, that's the place to start. If you're going to try to manage something, you should measure it. So certainly soil samples are a great base place to start. So Kyle, I've noticed growers in the last years have asked me about whether I should take a spring soil sample or a fall soil sample. Do you have any opinions on which is better? Just going off of what the lab's base it is, it doesn't fluctuate a whole lot. So we got some in-season guys that scoot around on four-wheelers, and they're pulling a lot of soil samples after the corner beans come up. Talking to the labs, they said there really isn't a whole lot of variability across it on certain nutrients. So whether it's done in the fall or maybe the fall gets pushed too late and we don't get to stick the ground before it freezes up up in northern half of the United States. So... I think if you're going to go out there and you're going to start variable rate, the first thing you have to do is start in grid. And what size do you think the grid should be, Joel? I mean, if we're going to variable rate and push populations and start spreading based on that, what's your grid size you think you should start? I think if the cost of sampling got cheaper, I'd maybe go all the way down to a one-acre grid. But I see it pretty commonly at two-and-a-half acres. And the thing that you've got to get to is consistency is what really matters. It doesn't matter if you're always in the fall or always in the spring or at one acres, at two-and-a-half acres. It's the consistency year over year. The soil samples aren't 100% accurate. But if you start to collect information in a certain format, it's important that you can start to develop trend lines year over year by looking at it from a consistent standpoint. That's probably the best place to start with a soil sample is just be consistent. So when I start looking at soil samples and I start coming back and the P levels are low, whether it's an Olsen or a Bray or the K levels are low, I start looking at it going, how do I build them? How do I make my soil better? How do I make them to the point where you're consistently getting that 250 bushel 
300 bushel corn and 60 plus bushel soybeans. So if we're looking at to raise one part per million on phosphorus, you have to apply an additional 18 pounds of product for one part per million. So this isn't a quick fix. This isn't dump it on one year and your land is all of a sudden great. Potassium, you're looking at nine pounds. Nine pounds of additional to raise one part per million. And so if people are starting to look at the K levels of 175 and you want to move them to 200, or if you're at 200, you want to move them, you might have to do something different. You might be organic fertilizer. It might be more of a fertilizer coming from cattle or hogs or turkey or chicken. So not organic like the granola bar? Not organic like the granola bar, Joel. The tissue sample business really starts out in the growing season and as a snapshot there. But one of the things, just real plain and simple, if you haven't ever taken a tissue sample before, you can kind of look at some of the trend lines. And some of the trend lines year over year is zinc and boron are two micronutrients that are deficient more often than not. The macronutrients or secondary macronutrient like sulfur Actually, those can depend a little bit on how wet of a year it is, and those can help guide us there. But there's some good trend lines. I think we've collected uh, almost a half million samples on corn alone in the last six years, and those are just some trend lines that we're seeing is that zinc and boron tend to be some really big micronutrient deficiencies in corn. On the tissue side of things, I look at it as an in-season management. Look, if we're going to raise 300 bushel corn or 75 to 100 bushel beans, it's going to come from in-season management. It's not going to be laying all your fertilizer down and say, gee, I hope uh, I get enough rain this year and I hope the stars align and we get adequate amount of sunshine. we got to start looking at the in-season and do the tissue. Yes, it's a fragment of time. It's a snapshot of time, but that's what it needs. I mean, if your kid was starving at home, you'd probably want to feed it, right? So we don't wait till the end and wait for the kid to grow up to 18 and go, gosh, I would have give them some more vitamins or I wish I would have given them another meal a day. We feed the kid and that's what we should start doing to our plants in season. Now we're talking about the CPP or nutrients for next season and similar to seed. What does the timeline look like for planting CPP or nutrients for next season? Well, as you look at corn prices sliding back. I think one of the things that happened in the commodity prices, we're actually not at too bad of a ratio for corn to nutrient prices. I was looking at a study put out by Mosaic, and we are at about the five-year average for corn to fertilizer prices. So with that being said, that it's kind of this ebb and flow of if we produce more corn, we probably need more fertilizer in the U.S. And that balance, you can cheat yourself for a couple years if you think that the fertilizer prices are too high. But at some point, if you keep not putting nutrients on and pulling yield out, you've got to pay the Pied Piper. And I think that's one of the things, if you've got high soil fertility, you can maybe cut back a little bit for a year or two. But at some point, you've got to keep up. And I think that's the challenge is we're continually driving corn yields up. The U.S. corn yield average hasn't slid back in a number of years, and it keeps climbing. So that means fertilizer is a growth industry. It's dependent upon the yield going up, and I think those two are go hand in hand. See, Joel, this is where you and I disagree a little bit. I'm not big on pulling back on any nutrients. I look at crop removal, and I always want to do a crop removal basis, and I apply your fertilizer based off that. Otherwise, you become an issue like we have in my area this year, standability. Guys put on just nitrogen and said, you know what, I'm not cutting. I'm not putting any P&K down, or I cut way back. 
The standability of the lignin in the corn stalks this year is significantly weakened because of lack of nutrients. And so I'm not big on cutting back. Could you? Maybe. I'm not going to allow it if I can help it with my growers just because I don't want to look them in the eye or look their wife in the eye or if it's a milk dairy parlor that they don't have enough feed to feed their animals. So replace the nutrients you remove from the acre and we'll be fine. What factors should farmers discuss with sellers to plan out product purchases for next year when it comes to nutrients? When you look at your macronutrients, your NPK, those are great places that you should be taking your soil sample and making good database decisions there. When you look at micronutrients, micronutrients tend to be a little bit more difficult. You can make some bulk fertilizer applications of micronutrients like zinc in the fall. That's a pending soil test. But a lot of times our best chances to respond to micronutrients come in season from a foliar application with a tissue sample. I just pulled Minnesota and a couple other Midwestern states today for their tissue sample data on what they were most efficient in. Kyle, take a guess. Out of all the micronutrients, what do you think the leading micronutrient deficiency was this year? On corn, I would say zinc. Why do you say zinc? What's so important about that? So zinc in the development of actually germination process, that's it's a huge deal early. And if you look at any kind of studies that are done through the answer plot system, we don't show a big increase in using zinc early, and that's because we're masked because all of our answer plots are planted, from what I understand, with, with zinc in furrows. So the demand peak on the curves doesn't show that there's a high demand there because you have the product there, and it masks a lot of that. You're exactly right, and that was the primary thing. It was followed by boron, which is still an immobile nutrient in the plant. So as you think about what you're looking at and what you can make soil amendments to, there is a limit to what you can make soil amendments to. There's also a limit that what you can make micronutrient amendments to or foliar nutrient amendments. Kyle, what, uh, what macronutrients would you not necessarily recommend foliarly? I would say phosphorus would be one of them. And potassium is another tough one to do, right? So those should be applied in a granular form. And there is some liquids that are out there that you can put in in a Y-drop system and get them down where they need to go, but they don't move in the soil as much, so they shouldn't be applied that way. Of course, that's a lot of dry land discussion. I think irrigation has a little bit easier time moving some of those nutrients in season, like potassium, just because it can move it through the soils. The irrigation game is completely different just based on your ability to spoon feed that crop little by little. And so don't get dry land confused with irrigation. I think there are different management strategies altogether. So what is the importance of creating a holistic crop protection program? Well... A holistic crop protection program starts by getting a good layer of soil residual pre-emergent on. In some parts of the U.S., getting a fall burn down, if you're not controlling your weeds in the fall, your chances of killing them in the spring with the winter annuals like the dandelions or maybe the mare's tail, you don't have a shot at even killing them in the spring. And I think that's one of the things as I've been out and about is some of the areas that are a little bit warmer and we get some top growth on winter annuals, you really got to get after a fall burndown program, especially if it's a no-till environment. You're not going to run that field cultivator through first pass next spring. Beyond that, it's about layering residuals and adding modes of action. 
And that's one of the things that we're starting to stack on. You're seeing more and more of the pre-emerges have multiple modes of action in there, as well as our post sprays are not only just packing in the Roundup, we're also bringing back some other chemistries that layer in another little bit of residual. So tank mix partners are really key. That helps keep fields clean year-round. I think the big thing, if you come to our winter technology meetings, we talk about a lot of layers like Joel alluded to. We have talks of bringing two, three different herbicides in there, so we do mix it up because if you have the same thing over and over, sprayed on the same weed over and over, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to be a build-up resistance. So it's a big thing about layering, bringing in different modes of action, and then also using the right rate. We talk a lot about that at our answer plots. We talk a lot about it as winter technology meetings. This half-rate chemistry and then followed up by glyphosate doesn't work very well anymore it did at the beginning now we're using three-quarter if not full rates which i always suggest using full rates and then follow back up with the timely application of glyphosate maybe it's 20 days later maybe it's 24 days we have to get them while they're in the cotyledon stage or less than three to six inches tall with some certain types of weeds Kyle, I can't help but notice that coming into the winter months here, you started to grow some extra warmth on your face. What is weed control and beard control? Do you have anything there? I see farmers out there trying to control four-inch weeds. Is it harder to shave a four-inch beard? It all depends on how thick it is, Joel, and I'll allude to the weed issue and not my beard issue, that the thickness of your weeds does matter, and that's why we talk about spray volumes in water and the rates. If you have a carpet of weeds much harder control than individual weeds. So we look at it and talk about it in our answer plots, in our winter technology meetings, the importance of the right water volume, the right spray tip to make that herbicide application consistent, make every droplet count, and kill those weeds at an early age. So one of the things I think is fun is uh, in this ag technology space, I actually had a company come up and approach me and they said, well, we can identify water hemp, ragweed, and lamb's quarter, and common ragweed. And I said, you know, I can do that at about 70 miles an hour. They, they said, well, we can do it from a drone. I said, well, you, you've got me there. But this technology space, we've talked a little bit about weed ID and being able to see where weeds are. I don't think it's in the too distant future where we might actually be looking at that to understand the density of weeds that's in a field. But it's still going to come back to which herbicide, how do you layer in the residual, and can you get the timing right? The number one thing that I see us doing that hurts weed control is not starting clean, staying clean, and spraying weeds that are too tall. If it's over two inches, you've probably lost the battle. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield Ag Technology Application Lead and Winfield Master Agronomy Advisor, Kyle Reiner. For more episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes, My Farm Radio, and the Growing Knowledge blog on AnswerPlot.com.